Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We've come to that time of year when we focus our thoughts on celebrating the incarnation. And that word incarnation, it, it doesn't appear in the Bible, but it's a word that the church has been using for many years to describe what we celebrate at Christmas. Uh, in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God added humanity to His divine nature, came lived among us, died in our place, and then rose from the grave. And this Christmas season, I want to look at the incarnation uh, as it's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Luke also gives a lot of information about the birth of Jesus in his Gospel account. Uh, and if you pay close attention to Luke's Gospel account, you find that in his historical narrative, much of the narrative informs you about what Mary experienced. Matthew's account is shorter. And his account uh, tells you a lot about what Joseph experienced. So let's look at that together, uh, starting in uh, first. Uh, sorry, starting in Matthew chapter one, verse eighteen. I'm going to read all the way down to verse twenty-five. Please follow along with me. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows: When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love Your Son whom You sent into the world to be Israel's Messiah and the Savior of us Gentiles. I'm so thankful that You sent Him the way You sent Him, and that He came the way He came, lived the way He lived, voluntarily died the way He died, rose the way He rose, and now reigns the way He reigns. I love Your people and our gatherings on the Lord's Day to offer You worship. There's no place on earth I'd rather be and no work I'd rather be doing. I thank You for the gift of this moment, and I pray for the people of Grace Fellowship Church that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would save sinners, sanctify saints, give hope to the discouraged, guidance to the perplexed, reconciliation to those who feel alienated, and peace to those who are anxious. Please send Your Spirit now to preach a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. In the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, each of the four gospel accounts uh, are written to uh, show that uh, something particular about who Jesus is, and Matthew wrote his gospel to present Jesus as Israel's king and long-awaited Messiah. Now, the fact that Jesus is a king is very important. The fact that He is building a kingdom is very important. Over and over again in Matthew's gospel, we're invited to be part of the kingdom of heaven. 
We're not invited to become citizens of the parliamentary democracy of heaven. We're not invited to become citizens in the People's Democratic Republic of heaven. We're invited into the kingdom of heaven, which is a monarchy. And the heart of a monarchy is that you have to have the right pedigree to reign and rule on the throne. And so, the first argument Matthew gives that Jesus is the Messiah has to do with uh, His lineage. And we saw that last week when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus through His adopted father, Joseph. And uh, Matthew's argument is that uh, the genealogy of Jesus shows that He has the proper lineage to be the promised Messiah who would be the son of David. Now, Luke also gives a genealogy, and uh, he gives the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. And as we'll see in our text this morning, uh, Joseph was not the natural father of Jesus. He was the adopted father of Jesus. Uh, But it's through Joseph that Jesus has the legal right to reign as Israel's king, and he has that legal right through David, but also through David's son, King Solomon. He has the right to the throne then in the same way that Caesar Augustus had the right to the throne of Rome. Caesar Augustus did not have a right to the throne of Rome because he was a uh, biological descendant of Julius Caesar. He had a right to the throne because Julius Caesar adopted him, so it was a legal right. And you have the same thing with Jesus as king of Israel uh, legally through the line of Joseph, his adopted father. And what that actually does, that arrangement actually solves a big problem that's prophesied about in the Old Testament. Almost 600 years before the birth of Jesus, God had cursed the Davidic king through uh, King Jeconiah. He had, he had uh, cursed the Davidic line through King Jeconiah by saying that no descendant of Jeconiah's would ever reign on the throne of Israel. And when Jesus came, uh, Joseph his father, was still under that curse. So, how could Jesus be Israel's king when his father is under the curse of Jeconiah? Well, it's because Joseph was not involved in the bloodline of Jesus since he was virgin conceived. The blood right of Jesus to the throne comes through Mary, through King David, through Nathan, Solomon's brother. Uh, but his legal right to the throne comes through Joseph, his adopted Father, and all of that fulfills the prophecy made by first in First Samuel, excuse me, in Second Samuel seven, uh, that he would be a son of David and reign as an eternal king. And I bring all of that up. I know that's complicated. That slows down the beginning of a sermon to explain that. But I bring that all up because it's important for understanding biblical prophecy. But I also wanted to bring it up because there are enemies of Christianity who claim that uh, the genealogies of Matthew and Luke somehow contradict each other. Uh, they, they claim that they contradict each other because starting with Solomon and Nathan, uh, the names are different in the genealogies. But the reason the names are different is because they're two different genealogies. The genealogy in Matthew is the genealogy through Joseph, uh, his adopted father, and the genealogy in Luke is through Mary, his biological mother. And both genealogies serve important functions in each of their gospel accounts. By giving us the genealogy of Jesus through His adopted father, Joseph, Uh, Matthew is showing that uh, Jesus fulfills messianic prophecy, has a legal right to the throne of Israel, but also uh, was not tainted uh, or under the curse of Jeconiah. 
Now, the second argument that Matthew is going to give us uh, about Jesus having a right to Israel's throne and fulfilling Messianic prophecy, it comes in our passage this morning. It has to do with His miraculous conception. That also qualifies Him to fulfill Messianic prophecies like the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. In, uh, in verse 18, Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Messiah was as follows. Now, when we talk about that, the birth of Jesus, we need to clarify something. The New Testament clearly teaches that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, existed from eternity past with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son did not begin to exist when the Holy Spirit created conception in Mary's womb. God the Son existed from eternity past. And so, two and very, very important things happened when God the Son came to earth. First, He added humanity to His divine nature. He became a real, authentic human being. Uh, now, He wasn't tainted by original sin, so maybe we could clarify it this way. Uh, Jesus had all the attributes of unfallen humanity uh, because He wasn't born into sin and didn't commit sin. And the second major thing that happened when He came to earth and took on humanity is that He emptied Himself of the independent use of His divine attributes. Paul talks about that in Philippians 2. Uh, we learn there that although the Son of God existed uh, from eternity past in the form of God, quote, He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So, when Matthew says that the birth of Jesus was as follows, understand the Son of God wasn't created by the Holy Spirit in that moment. The Son of God was leaving heaven to come to earth and add humanity to His nature. Perhaps we could paraphrase Matthew's words this way, when it comes to the humanity of the Son of God, here's how His origin could be explained. Verse 18, when His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, that verse, uh, verse 18, it needs some explaining because our culture doesn't understand the idea of betrothal. It would be a mistake to think as an English speaker, well, betrothal is probably just uh, their word for our engagements. And that's, not, that's actually not accurate. Uh, betrothal in first century uh, in the Jewish community, it was very different and also a little bit more serious than our engagements. Uh, marriage in Jewish culture at this time involved two stages. There was the kiddushin, which we call the betrothal, and the chuppah, which we would consider to be the actual marriage ceremony. Marriages were arranged by, uh, for individuals by their parents, by their family, and marriage contracts were written up and uh, negotiated. A bride price was paid by the husband-to-be uh, or by his family to the wife's family to compensate the uh, bride uh, for the price of the, the wedding. Um, and once the contract was in force, the couple was considered to be married, and they were even called husband and wife. Uh, you see that in our text, right? Joseph, in verse 18, is still only in the betrothal period with Mary, and yet Matthew, excuse me, in verse 19, uh, Matthew refers to him as Mary's husband, even though at that moment in the historical narrative, they're only betrothed. So, the betrothed couple had a binding legal arrangement. They were referred to 
as husband and wife. However, the couple didn't live together, and they were to abstain from any sexual activity with each other. The woman continued to live in her parents' house, and the husband, he began to uh, build the house uh, that they were going to live in after they were married. The betrothal period could last for up to a year, and it could only be annulled by a legal divorce, and the only grounds for a divorce were adultery. The second part of the Jewish marriage we call the chuppah, and it's when the husband uh, would march ceremonially with great fanfare with all of his friends and family. He would march from the home he had prepared uh, across town over to his wife's parents' house, and he would take her. They would march back to the home he had prepared, and then they would have a little ceremony where they exchanged vows. Then they would have a wedding reception, which could last up to seven days. Right? And all you fathers out there, you thought your daughter's wedding cost a lot of money. Seven days of a reception, that's, that's a long time. And, uh, and that was how marriage worked. Uh, um, there would be this great feast that could last uh, for wealthy couples for up to seven days. Now, in their culture, most Jewish men married by the age of 20, most Jewish women married between the ages of 13 and 15, so very young, much younger than uh, we're used to. Now, when Matthew says that Mary was pregnant before they came together, he's telling us two things. When he says before they came together, he's communicating to us that the marriage ceremony hadn't taken place. Joseph hadn't gone to her parents' house and taken her home and exchanged vows and had the chuppah. None of that had happened. But secondly, uh, he's also telling us that Joseph and Mary were not sexually involved with each other. Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So this conception then was a miracle. We often refer to it in the church as the miracle of the virgin birth, but it would probably be better to call it the miracle of the virgin conception. It was a special creative miracle in the womb of Mary, whereby the Holy Spirit bypassed the regular means of conception so that the Son of God could take on human flesh. Now, at this point, we need to stop and talk about the chronology of events that have taken place. Uh, if you compare this passage with Luke's gospel, what you find is this. Uh, after the angel Gabriel told Mary she would conceive and bear a son, she left Nazareth to go spend three months with her cousin Elizabeth, who was, uh, and Elizabeth at that point was six months pregnant with John the Baptist. Uh, Elizabeth lived in the Judean hill country, and so Mary stayed with her for three months. When Mary returned to Nazareth uh, three months later, uh, she was then at least three months pregnant, and Joseph found out. We're not told how he found out that Mary was pregnant. I like to imagine that Mary had a conversation with him for the sake of honesty, but uh, also, I, I have to say in the pulpit, I can't tell you that that happened. The Bible doesn't record for us how that happened. We just know from Matthew's account that Joseph found out she was pregnant, and this would be around the three-month mark. Uh, Mary was found to be with child. And this news would have been shocking to Joseph, and I think we need to stop and slow down and walk a mile in his shoes for a moment. Uh, Joseph is a righteous man. He believes in God. He's trying to live life according to God's law. He's been pure. Mary is a righteous woman. She has a good reputation, I'm sure, um, and he'd been looking forward to marrying her and enjoying life together. He trusted her, but now she's pregnant, and so it's going to appear to him 
as if she's commit adultery, as if she's been unfaithful to him. I think he probably was shocked at the news. Uh, maybe he was emotionally numb after the shock wore off. But regardless, it forced uh, Joseph into a situation where he had to make a decision about what to do next, and he only had three options. First, he could still choose to marry uh, uh, to marry Mary. Um, but that wasn't really an option that his culture encouraged. For instance, in Roman law, husbands were condemned who failed to divorce unfaithful wives because they were viewed as using their wives as prostitutes. Now, admittedly, Joseph was not a part of Roman culture, but Roman culture had influenced Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, there was a book called the Mishnah, which uh, was a collection of oral traditions that were meant to supplement the five books of Moses. And the Mishnah dealt with this very kind of situation. Uh, the Mishnah forbade a man in this situation from going ahead and marrying the girl. Uh, the view was that such a man would be knowingly marrying a wife who would commit a very serious violation of the law, and if he would knowingly do that, it, it causes doubts about how committed to the law he himself is. Not only that, but if he went ahead and married the girl, it would widely be considered a tacit admission that the child was his. So, hurrying up with the chuppah and taking Mary as his wife, that was not uh, an option that Joseph's culture would have encouraged him in. His second option would have been to divorce Mary through the local court system. That system was public. It would have made a public spectacle of Mary and her family. Uh, in fact, uh, that's a legitimate way to translate that he didn't want to disgrace her. In Colossians, there's that same Greek word for disgrace, but we translate it as make a spectacle of. Joseph didn't want to make a spectacle of Mary and publicly shame her, and a public court proceeding would have done that in Nazareth. Now, we like to assume that Joseph was uh, a good man because God chose him to be the earthly adopted father of his son. And I think you see some of that goodness and righteousness here on display in that he doesn't want to do that to Mary. Even though it appears that she's guilty to him, he doesn't want to disgrace her. Uh, he doesn't want to make a spectacle of her and her family and their reputation. And uh, I think that shows a, a, a compassion on Joseph's part, even though Mary appears to him in this moment to be an adulteress. Uh, there was, however, also a third option. Uh, the Mishnah made provision for a private divorce, a discreet divorce, uh, and that was only when there was uh, suspected adultery during the betrothal period. And it involved two witnesses. There was a little bit of paperwork that needed to be filled out, but it could all take place very discreetly, very quietly, outside of the public court system. And that's the route that Joseph chose. Matthew tells us, verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Uh, the Greek word that we translate as send her away is actually the technical Greek word for divorce. We could have just translated, uh, he planned to divorce her secretly, the quiet, in the quiet way that the Mishnah allowed. Um, and if Joseph pursues this option, you have to ask the question, well, then what's Mary going to do, right? What's her next move? She can tell the story about the angel visiting her, 
but nobody's really going to believe her. And one of the reasons why is because it's been almost 400 years at this point since God has spoken through visions and prophets and angelic messengers to anyone in Israel. It's been over 700 years since there's been an overt miracle of God happen in Israel. Uh, Mary is pregnant, and the two witnesses and uh, Joseph and anybody else who finds out is going to just assume that she's guilty of adultery during the betrothal period. Uh, Mary is in a very difficult situation, but God intervenes. Uh, Joseph settles on this plan, but he hasn't started to pursue it yet when a messenger from the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So, what the angel says here, it comes from that chupa ceremony. Take her is an expression for the husband taking his bride from her wife's parents' house and taking her home to be with him and, and having the exchanging vows at their new home and having that whole ceremony. That, that's what the angel is telling him. Go ahead, have the chupa, marry the girl. But Joseph's fears, because of her pregnancy are justified, and so the angel answers that concern by saying that the source of this child is literally out of the Holy Spirit. The source of this child is not another man. The source is a creative miracle of the Holy Spirit. So, God intervenes. He communicates with Joseph to take Mary as his wife, even though she's pregnant before they get married, which means that the birth of Messiah was a scandal even to his own earthly father, at least at first, it was a scandal. Uh, even to Joseph, it was scandalous at first. And we're not told how far into the betrothal period uh, Joseph and Mary were, but I think it's safe to say that when Joseph woke up from this dream uh, and took Mary to be his wife, it probably uh, shortened whatever time period they had planned for their betrothal. Um, and if Mary wasn't showing, certainly she was going to be showing pretty soon after their marriage. She would have given birth six months later, and, and of course, that happened away in Bethlehem. But even before they made the trip to Bethlehem, it would have been obvious to everyone in Nazareth, she's pregnant, and all the adults in town can do the math. And so, we need to make this point that Joseph and Mary had nothing to be ashamed of before God, and yet there was a certain stigma they had to carry that was part of the burden of being the parents of Messiah, at least amongst those who didn't believe their story, um, uh, they had to bear that burden. Um, and I believe this comes up later, this whole issue comes up later in the life of our Lord. For instance, in John 8, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees like He frequently did, and uh, He's in the middle of this argument. They're very proud that they're uh, descendants of Abraham, and He tells them, well, yeah, biologically you're descendants of Abraham, but you don't do the deeds of Abraham and you want to murder me, you're just doing the deeds of your father, the devil. And their reply to him is, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, God. And, and most pastors see their reference to fornication being a jab at Jesus, as if they've heard rumors about uh, his parents and the fact that his mom had him six months after his mom and dad got married. And um, so, this was scandalous. Joseph and Mary were given a high spiritual privilege, 
Um, the part they play in the story of redemptive history being the parents of Messiah is something that we're going to be celebrating into eternity future, but at the time, they had to go through a very difficult uh, situation, a very difficult social stigma uh, was theirs because of the circumstances surrounding this. Now, this entire miracle of the virgin conception, it does raise a question for us, and the question is, why did it have to be this way? I mean, God isn't random. Uh, we know He does things for a good reason. Why did the virgin conception of Jesus have to play out this way? Well, before I answer that question, I want to clear the table by clarifying what the virgin conception of Jesus did not accomplish. First, the virgin conception is not the cause of Christ's deity. He existed with the Father as part of the Trinity from eternity past. And second, the virgin conception was not the cause of Christ's sinlessness. Uh, some Christians have reasoned that uh, maybe the sin nature passes down to children through fathers, and uh, since Joseph was not part of the process, maybe that's why Jesus was sinless. But there's no evidence for that uh, scripturally or biologically um, that the sin nature is only passed down through fathers. Uh, sin nature is passed down through both father and mother. For instance, David's mother, we know King David's mother, was not in sin. Uh, she was with David's father, Jesse, not in sin, faithful to each other, and yet David says, in sin my mother conceived me. And he's not pointing back to the circumstances of his conception. He's talking about how sin is passed down. In fact, in that particular psalm where David says that, I think, in essence, what David is saying is, this is such a part of who I am, it's been with me since the womb. It's been with me since conception that I desire the wrong things, I compulsively rebel against God. Uh, in sin, my mother conceived me. The fact is, the Holy Spirit, if anything, had to protect the humanity of Jesus from the sinfulness of Mary. That's part of what makes the virgin conception so miraculous. The virgin conception didn't cause the deity of Jesus. It didn't somehow uh, protect His sinlessness. There's other Christians who would look at the question and they would say, well, the, the reason that it had to be this way is to fulfill prophecy, right? Uh, Isaiah 7.14, and, and now because of your long-winded explanation at the beginning, it also we had to get around the curse on Jeconiah. Maybe those are the reasons. And certainly, you, you definitely see that with prophecy. In fact, I think there's a shadow of this in what the promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 3, because He talks about the seed of Eve crushing the head of the serpent, which is really strange in Hebrew, because nowhere else in the Hebrew Old Testament do you have the seed of a woman being talked about. You have the seed of Abraham, you have the descendants of fathers in genealogies from father to son, but nowhere else do you have the seed of a woman. It's a very strange expression in Hebrew, and I think it points forward to him being the seed of Mary, uh, but not biologically of, of Joseph. But uh, this prophecy is even more explicit, uh, the virgin conception in Isaiah 7.14, uh, where it's prophesied that a virgin will be with child, she'll bear a son, and the people will call him literally God among us or God with us, which is what the Hebrew name Emmanuel means. Uh, so, the virgin conception, it does fulfill the prophecies of Genesis 3, Isaiah 7, uh, but then the question becomes, well, then why was it prophesied? Uh, that way? Why does it have to be that way? And I believe the answer that the virgin conception had to be this way is this. The virgin conception was necessary 
because it was the only possible means by which the preexistent Son of God could add uh, full humanity to Himself. Let, let, me, let me explain that for a moment. What happens when a man and woman conceive a child? Well, that child becomes a person. One of the reasons we're pro-life here at Grace Fellowship Church is because we believe life begins at conception. But the Son of God was already a person. So if He had added humanity in the normal way, He would have added a second whole person to His nature. The virgin conception was the only way for the Son of God to retain His identity and add full humanity to Himself. Our early church fathers wrestled with this very question to the point where they even had an early church council to address it. History calls that council the Council of Chalcedon, and listen, in part to the, listen to part of the statement they published for everybody after that council. They said, quote, "'Our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, of equal essence with the Father according to the Godhead, and equal essence with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, but without sin.'" And those last two phrases are very important. They're the result of pastors who met at Chalcedon to try and clarify for their own generation that Jesus was truly divine and truly human, and that Jesus was like, in His humanity, He was like you and I, except without sin. What they were trying to explain in street language uh, for their generation was what the author of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews 2, 14 and following, the author of Hebrews says this, "'Since the children share in flesh and blood, the Lord's Messiah likewise partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power over death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, Jesus had to be, or we could also translate it, was obligated to be. It was necessary for Him to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. God has always required that uh, the one representing people has to be one of them. Uh, for God the Son to be a mediator be between God and man, He had to become one of us. He had to become just like you and me so that He could be a merciful and faithful high priest, and also so that He could become an appropriate sacrifice corresponding to us. Uh, that's why He had to come and take on human flesh. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's really the meaning of the incarnation. That's really the true meaning of Christmas, that God became a man and lived among us. Now, more than uh, 2,000 years after the incarnation, Western culture has managed to make Christmas into a complicated holiday. Uh, the young are distracted with gifts, and those of us who are older, uh, we sometimes get sentimental uh, and sad uh, thinking about the past and thinking about family. Uh, I think many of us uh, experience December blues to some extent. Um, I don't I don't think the cold gray weather helps. At least it doesn't, and the shorter days, they don't help me 
uh, for sure. But I want to encourage you to not let the clutter of the presence uh, or the drama of family or the sentimentalism uh, distract you from the simplicity of what we actually celebrate at Christmas. Uh, This is actually supposed to be a happy time where we celebrate the good news that God intervened in human history to create a way for sinners to be reconciled to Himself. We celebrate at Christmas the Father giving up the Son, and we celebrate the Son voluntarily leaving heaven, willingly giving up His glory, and coming to live among us. So, don't let the other things that we've made Christmas into distract you from that. Uh, I know for a fact that many of you who are midlife and older, you you probably endure a certain amount of sadness at Christmas, and uh, much of that has to do with disappointment with family, right? Uh, Maybe uh, you've had to bury your mom and dad, and you wish that they were still with us. Or maybe you're empty nesters, and you don't get to see your children and grandchildren as much as you'd like, and there's reasons why the relationship is, is strained. Or, or maybe you're a widow or a widower, and you're facing Christmas alone. Our culture has made Christmas all about family and being home for the holidays, but biblically speaking, that's not actually what Christmas is about. For the, for the Christian, Christmas is a time to focus on and, and, and to make some practical effort some, to, to, to exert some emotional self-control and some mental discipline uh, fighting for joy, uh, fighting to focus on uh, the reason for the season and attempting to have a, a cheerful demeanor uh, and have a smile praising God for the gift of His Son. And it's a time for children and for spouses who all love one another to make sure that included with our family traditions, we point each other, each other back to the reason why we're celebrating the season. And so, I want to encourage you and exhort you as your pastor, fight for joy this season. Carve out some time to return thanks to God for all He's given you. Make sure that you praise Him for the gift of His Son. Perhaps read uh, the narratives of the birth of Christ in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. Make sure in your Christmas traditions uh, you point towards Christ and point towards joy. This is supposed to be a time of feasting, of celebration. If you're, if you're one of the few Christians in our modern era who, practice, who actually practices fasting, you don't practice fasting on Christmas Day. You feast right? That's part of what we do. We have a feast. We celebrate. And even though you might be facing some really hard things, I'm not asking you to, uh, to be uh, hypocritical on Christmas Day, but I am asking you to fight for joy because this is a season of joy. We're not, this is not our version of Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. Uh, this is uh, something that we celebrate where God's Son came into the world. And let's be honest about it, We don't know the actual date on the calendar when Christ was born, but personally, I love that we do it near the darkest day of the year in the northern hemisphere uh, because of what it represents, the light of of God's Son coming into the world to save us uh, from deceit, the deceits of sin, and our enslavement to sin and the penalty to sin. And so, as you celebrate the Christmas season… Try to focus on fighting for joy and practicing mental self-control and enumerating the blessings you've received and praising God for the gift of His Son. Uh, Let's pray.